Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. Um, This weekend, I I came across a story about something that happened on Valentine's Day in 1748. It is the account of Jerusha Edwards' death. And when she died, she was only 17 years old. She was the second daughter of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards, and he was a pastor and theologian, as many of you know, in New England. Um, For several months in the prior year, 1747, she had served as a helper to the missionary David Brainerd. He was very sick. I think he had tuberculosis, and his health was declining as the year went on, and she was a helper to him. He was a missionary to the Native Americans, and he continued to try to work up until the last couple of months of his life. So um, the next spring, she's only 17 years old. She came down with a fever, and her parents sought medical help, but nothing could be done. She, her health worsened. So it's clear in her final days that she was looking back on her life. She had some awareness that she was going to die. So two things struck me about her and her family. She told her parents, <clears throat> excuse me, that she, as she was looking back, she had seen each moment of the past several years as an opportunity to serve and glorify God. And that was very convicting to me, because that's not how I look at most of my days. Like I slog through work many days. Um, I can get irritable with people, and I don't look at my life and a lot of times I'm not wearing those lenses. This is an opportunity to serve and glorify the Lord. The second thing that struck me was a letter that Jonathan Edwards wrote to a friend a couple weeks after Jerusha died. He asked for prayers for their family, particularly for their sanctification, and specifically that God would fill up this melancholy vacancy. And of another friend, he asked for prayers that God would make up our great loss in spiritual blessings. Those prayer requests pierced my heart because of Edward's response to God in the midst of suffering. They also got me thinking about dealing with hardships here and now. The melancholy vacancies in life where grace and peace and security seem far from us. As believers, we know that when hard things happen to us, We have to have the predisposition before the things happen that God is good, that our circumstances are ordained by divine providence, and that when those circumstances persist for months and years and even decades, that God is good and God is faithful. When the Apostle of Hebrews says, you have need of endurance, the same counsel can not just be said of the Hebrews, but of all believers. We all have need of endurance. So when we approach scripture, it's important for us to remember that every word that is spoken comes from God. We know this. It's important to remember that the Holy Spirit inspired the author to say what he had to say. And even though chapter 10 is exactly like it's supposed to be, there's a part of me that was thinking like the apostle buries the lead and puts this part about suffering at the end in verse 32. He's talking about the suffering that the Hebrews endured. And that's because the suffering's not the main point. The main point is Jesus and following him through all of life. 
Yet I can't help but wonder if the suffering and trials of the Hebrews may have been a point of entry for unbelief for some of them. And I'll return to that question in a moment. Today, though, we're at a turning point in Hebrews. The text that we study today is the end of the doctrinal section and the beginning of an extended exhortation. The text includes a warning to believers not to forsake the new covenant faith. So that's going to be my central focus, is the warning, the hard part. Not really like my first choice (laughs) to focus on the hard part. But um, the evening Bible study said, it's so hard. (laughs) And so I thought, I think that's what I need to talk about. Um, I think it's going to benefit us to reflect on the Hebrew circumstances and to heed the apostles' warning for our own lives. But first, it's important to note that that warning in Hebrews 10 is bookended. That's how um, Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says it's bookended by these exhortations, this counsel for living and persevering in Christ. Because in that counsel, we have application, um, our practical application for our faith. So I'm going to look at the bookends briefly, because that's where the apostle situates the warning between these two things. That's purposeful. So we know because Christ made a way for believers to enter into a familial relationship with God, Uh, The apostle exhorts his audience to draw near to God with a sincere heart. Furthermore, he encourages them to hold fast to the confession of their hope without wavering because God is faithful. He also exhorts them to consider how to encourage each other and to continue meeting with one another to worship and fellowship. Then, as we know, comes the warning, which is followed by the acknowledgement of the Hebrew Christian's suffering and persecution After mentioning the Hebrews' reproach, affliction, and imprisonment of some believers, the apostle says, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Throughout the book of Hebrews so far, The apostle has been building the grounds of why Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant, as foretold by the prophets. And we know that one of the central concerns of the the apostle is that some Christians were seriously considering returning to Judaism. One of the apostles' aims in this letter or sermon is to dissuade them from doing so. So the warning in chapter 10 is not the first one given to the Hebrews. Remember... At the beginning of chapter 2, the apostle warns his audience not to neglect such a great salvation. In chapter 3, the apostle asserts that Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope. Then he quotes Psalm 95, and he goes on, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, when your forefathers, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, they have not known my ways. In chapter 6, the apostle says that restoration in repentance is impossible for those who have been once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, 
and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and yet they have fallen away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The warning in chapter 10 is in that same vein, presenting the consequences of rejecting God. It immediately follows the exhortation not to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And if you think about it, every day that we're alive, that day is drawing near. The apostle then says, and this is the warning of Hebrews 10, and I will, like, warning right now, there's a lot of scripture in this. I think we need to hear it. The apostle says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a hard word. Nick Batzig, um, who's a PCA pastor in Richmond Hill, um, he calls this one of the least seeker-sensitive passages in the Bible. <laughs> uh, but it's something that we need to hear. He and many Reformed theologians believe that the deliberate sin here is apostasy, which is the re- willful rejection of Jesus Christ and his work and a deliberate walking away from him. The apostle is talking about people who have received the truth and are considering leaving it. John Owen notes, that the head of this exhortation is that we should hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. That's in verse 23. And then we're given the means of continuing in that profession in verses 24 and 25. Therefore, the willful sin warned against in this exhortation is to quote Owen, the relinquishment and renouncing of the profession of the faith with all acts and duties thereunto belonging. This is, again, uh, Owen's words, an internal rejection of the gospel and a display of an evil heart of unbelief to depart from the living God. It's putting hope and confidence in something other than Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus. So the apostles' intent here is not to scare people out of their wits, um, but to warn them in love. Sinclair Ferguson says that this falling away looks, it goes like this. If I heard the gospel, but I'm indifferent to the gospel, I will die as someone who rejected the gospel. The apostles' concern for the Hebrews is that they not deliberately reject or be complacent toward the known will of God, which is, like, how do we know God's will? It's revealed to us in Scripture. Draw near to God. Hold fast. Come together to encourage each other. Continue in the faith and trust Jesus Christ. Do not return to the blood of bulls and goats. 
The apostles' warning is ultimately that the Hebrews not reject Jesus. There is no other blood that will cover their sin. To reject Christ's saving work is to reject God. First, it's rejecting the Son of God. Second, it shows spite for the new covenant that the Father instituted in Christ's blood. And third, it insults the Spirit of grace. And for these things, there's no forgiveness. How do believers get to this point? They allow their hearts to become hardened. All apostasy, many reformers say, begins in the heart. When it becomes hardened in unbelief. And when does unbelief generally enter enter the heart? When life doesn't go the way we think it should, or the way that it ought to have gone for us. This is why I brought up the consideration of suffering when I was thinking about Jerusha Edwards and some of the things that I've been through. Um, you know, I've not been persecuted, but you, you think about those melancholy vacancies where you think, I could go this way instead of this way. Why should I keep on trusting God? Fortunately, the Spirit of Grace pulls it back. We don't know if suffering and persecution was the cause, for certain, for some of the Hebrews drifting away, but you don't have to look much further than the Israelites in the wilderness to see that discomfort and insecurity were catalysts of unbelief and shrinking back. So take that as a type. This is human nature. And I'm going to read a couple of passages from Numbers here. In Numbers 14, 1 through 4, the scripture tells us that the Israelites began rebelling against Moses and ultimately God's sovereignty. We need to hear this word, which says, when, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would we have died in the land of Egypt? Or would we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall into the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. How quickly the Israelites forgot that when they were in Egypt, they were in bondage. In Numbers 20, 2 through 6, there's further documentation of the Israelites' rebellion. And this is the account in Hebrews 3 where um, the, the apostle says, do not harden your hearts is in the rebellion. This is the specific account. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? There's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. So we can see they were legitimately, the Israelites were legitimately scared and physically very uncomfortable. And they could not see how their circumstances were going to turn out for the good. And they wanted to go back to the place where they were slaves. So consider the hardship of the Hebrew Christians. I think that their circumstances were much worse in ways than the Israelites because they had endured a hard struggle with sufferings, the apostle says, sometimes publicly, being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. If the Israelites were at risk of turning away from God's plan, of leading them to the promised land when they encountered physical discomfort, how much more so might believers in the first century 
be tempted to turn away when they encountered persecution. Yet the externals are not the cause of apostasy. The cause is in the heart. So we have to consider when suffering comes, how are our hearts disposed? Do we hold fast to the confession of faith without wavering? Believing that God who promised is faithful, are we tempted to say to God, I'm done with you? when yet another thing happens in our lives that we weren't counting on, that brings us pain. John Owen wrote a whole discourse on um, apostasy. If you're interested in reading it, it's, it's long. <laughs> um, it's called um, The Nature of Apostasy. That's the first part of the title. Um, if you were to Google that in John Owen, you'd find it. But I'm just going to highlight some of the things that he says here. Because... Considering that warning in Hebrews, I wanted to look at, you know, we know that apostasy starts in the heart. What does that look like? And what's the preventative for that? So Owen argues that apostasy or declension in the gospel originates in a person not seeing their need for Christ. He says that they never had a due sense of the want of Christ, either as to their deliverance from the guilt of sin or as to the procuring of a righteousness wherewith they might appear in the presence of God. The second cause is the lack of a spiritual view of the excellency of Christ, both in his person and his offices. This view of him in types, shadows, and promises, Owen says, was the life of faith of the saints under the Old Testament. And we'll see this as we continue our study next week. Further, Owen argues that is, it is the knowledge of Christ alone in seeing him as the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person that will make a person despise all other things in comparison to Jesus. Another cause of drifting is ignorance of the righteousness of God. Owen quotes Romans 10.3, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, They did not submit to God's righteousness. Without the grace of spiritual eyes, people will despise the gospel, abandon it, and substitute something else in its place. So considering the causes, we may well wonder, what is the cure? How do we prevent becoming apostate? Again, I'm going to paraphrase Owen because he's just a master of this subject. Um, But I'm going to preface it with everything he says We have to remember that nothing can be done apart from dependence on God's grace. So the first thing is to labor for a true, sincere concern for the glory of God and our duty to him. The second thing is to pray continually. Praying the promises of God's word for his glory, power, and purity of the Christian religion Owen reminds us that there is nothing too hard for God. If he will work here, nobody can stop him. Things are not gone beyond his cure. He can send peace and truth and righteousness from above and cause them to prevail on earth. The third thing is to be constant in your Christian witness. And there's a twofold manner in which to do this. This means you profess the gospel of faith and contend for it, for the truth of the gospel. 
and you humbly live in holiness, righteousness, and fruitfulness and good works. That's a tall order. But not, we can do none of these things apart from God's grace. And we have to be intentional in seeking those things. Above all else, Owen says, this is for, you must keep a careful watch over your heart regarding your duties toward God and an awareness of the things that tempt you. The beginning of every person's spiritual decline is in their heart, in their spirit. You are either, this is an argument that um, Owen makes, and Batsik makes it as well, you're either being careful, diligent, and watchful over your heart and your mind, or you're being slothful, careless, and negligent of its welfare. And I'm guilty of the latter myself. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, from from it flow the springs of life. People put a lot of energy into getting things and keeping them here. But the care and diligence of keeping our hearts is something that we neglect. And this is, again, a paraphrase of Owen. We keep our hearts by looking to Jesus, the captain of our salvation, who alone is able to keep us in the faith and in obedience, and he is the one who supplies us with the grace to do so. I often remember Dustin Salter's last sermon um, when he talked about providence and suffering. He said... um, I can't do this. I'm going to try. <laughs> he said that suffering will either make you a bitter person or a beautiful one. I think it's the beauty of the Lord that rests in us when we persevere and look to Jesus. What you know, the Psalm somewhere says, "May the favor of the Lord rest in us." That's that's perseverance. That's the beauty of Jesus. He was faithful to the end. In considering the warning of Hebrews 10, we need to understand that perseverance in faith, it's a certainty for Christians. You're going to make it to the end. Chapter 17 of uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith specifically addresses the perseverance of the saints. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. The Apostle of Hebrews says at the end of chapter 10, We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. However, um, those who profess Christ and ultimately reject him, they were never in Christ. Think about Judas Um, who spent three years ministering with Jesus. In the end, he walked away. He was never in Christ. He gave a good impression because, you know, the other disciples didn't know who was going to be the one to portray Jesus. Um, So the warning is because none of us are the Holy Spirit. We don't know. We We need the exhortation. 
So that warning and the exhortation, they go hand in hand. We need to be exhorted to, be draw, to draw near to God and not to forsake fellowship. Like the Hebrews, we have need of endurance. Perseverance does not mean that you will never sin or struggle in faith or be brought to the end of your life without pain. Perseverance means that you're given supernatural grace to cling to Christ in the midst of all struggles and the sorrow of living in a fallen world. So that I know of, nobody in here has gone to prison because they followed Jesus or had their possessions taken away. I'm not trying to be glib when I say this, but people who declare that they're giving up God give up for lesser reasons. Um, so I want you to think about what are the melancholy vacancies in your life and what losses do you live with? Do you question the goodness of God and entertain the thought of willfully rejecting him? Those thoughts have passed through my mind, if I'm honest. Um, and it's only by great God's grace. I'm so glad that I can recognize that I persevere because of the grace of Jesus. Um, my friend Joy, who I, I worked in college campus ministry before I came to TCU, and Joy uh, works in Montana with college students and discipling people. She's... Um, been in a wheelchair for over 30 years. She was coming home from the grocery store one day and somebody on drugs ran into her car and she's, is it quadriplegic when you can't use all of your limbs? She can has limited use of her arms. Like she can attach these writing instruments, but she can't really use her hands. Um, but when that accident happened to her, her heart was already fixed on God. She already looked at the world through those lenses that God is good. So she says that following Jesus is a daily ratification of your initial commitment to follow him. Like, you know, stuff's going to happen. And you've already made up your mind that God is good. The anecdote to blaming God in those difficult circumstances is to believe what is true, that God is good. And finally, I want us to remember that the counsel given to the Hebrews in chapter 10 is corporate. The apostle addresses brothers and implicitly sisters. We have confidence to draw near to God. We have a great high priest. Our hearts are sprinkled from an evil conscience. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. We all have need of endurance because we're all waiting for God. To keep our hearts and to persevere, we need to fix our eyes on the goodness and the glory of Jesus. And I think that's what Jonathan Edwards was doing when he was asking for prayer. He knew that my only consolation in this life is the Lord. To the end of our lives, we will need each other to build up our faith so that we continue believing that God is with us, that he's for us, that he loves us, and that he's sovereign over all of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you help us to remember these things, that you would keep us in your grace, Lord. We know that you will because you are faithful. Lord, may um, our study and the application of it be a light to the world. 
And Lord, I ask that you help us to draw near to you and to love each other well, to spur one another on to love and good works. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.